When it comes to anemias, iron deficiency is by far the most common one worldwide. The typical adult human body, if there is such a thing, has about four grams of iron. So some of that's in hemoglobin, in erythrocytes or red blood cells. A lot of that's in myoglobin, in muscle. Actually, a lot of it, about a gram of that, is stored as iron in the liver. And then there's iron stored in the macrophages, in the bone marrow, in the spleen. And then there's just a little bit of iron that's circulating around in your plasma. It's bound to transferrin. And we're talking about five milligrams of iron out of four grams total in your body. So 4,000 milligrams, about five milligrams or so is circulating in the plasma. While some patients will be asymptomatic with iron deficiency anemia, others will be very symptomatic. So that may include a lot of weakness and fatigue and exercise tolerance, some shortness of breath. And then there's some symptoms you really got to think about iron deficiency anemia, like restless leg syndrome. A lot of patients with restless leg syndrome have iron deficiency anemia causing it. And then pica, this is where there's this craving of eating ice. And when you hear that from a patient, they're like, I always want to chew on ice, you ought to be testing for iron deficiency anemia. Patients may actually look pale or have pallor. There can be glossitis, which is an inflammation of the tongue. Sometimes when you see angular stomatitis, also known as angular chelitis, and this is where there is an inflammation of one or both corners of the mouth. Sometimes it can be caused by iron deficiency anemia, but there's certainly other things like B vitamin deficiencies and candidiasis and all other kinds of infections that can cause angular chelitis. But Iron deficiency anemia remains in that differential diagnosis. And it's when we see anemias with a low MCV, an MCV less than 80, that we think of iron deficiency anemia, or we should be thinking of thalassemia. The hemoglobinopathies, the thalassemias, will typically have some tip-offs on the CBC and on the iron studies that you order so typically the thalassemias will have a normal RDW, a normal serum ferritin, and a normal transferrin saturation. But in iron deficiency anemia, all of those are decreased. I think one thing we need to keep in mind when we are diagnosing iron deficiency anemia is that there can be combined deficiencies causing anemias, meaning you could have iron deficiency and also have something like B12 deficiency at the same time. Now, when it comes to testing serum iron, yeah, it should be low in iron deficiency. The problem is it matters what setting you're testing the serum iron in, because if you're testing it in a hospitalized patient that has an acute or even a chronic infection or has a malignancy, those things can also drop the serum iron. And then there's a lot of other factors that can make the serum iron 
a bit difficult to interpret well. And for instance, if you're on oral iron therapy and you're already taking, let's say, ferrous sulfate, it can increase the serum iron in a matter of hours, which obviously does not mean that iron deficiency anemia is gone. There's the test TIBC, or total iron binding capacity, but probably more accurately called transferrin iron binding capacity. Remember that transferrin is this globulin that binds and transports iron, and therefore a TIBC is measuring the blood's capacity to bind iron with transferrin. And typically, if there's not enough iron around, there should be more capacity to bind iron, and so the TIBC should be elevated in iron deficiency anemia. But like everything we seem to talk about, there are exceptions. So sometimes you can actually have a normal TIBC and still have iron deficiency, and likewise, TIBC can be low in certain states like chronic inflammation and in malignancy. A test that should probably almost always be ordered if you're trying to diagnose iron deficiency anemia is serum ferritin because ferritin in the blood is directly related to the amount of iron stored in your body. But ferritin also is an acute phase reactant and so in chronic inflammation, in acute inflammation with fevers, it can be elevated. It also classically is elevated in both acute liver disease and in cirrhosis. Leukemias and Hodgkin's disease can elevate ferritin. So it depends on your clinical setting of where you're ordering the ferritin, if you're ordering it in a clinic or in a hospital with a population that has acute illness. But even in the hospital, I order ferritin when I'm working up iron deficiency anemia, and if it's low, even if there are fevers and infections and all that, then I'm pretty darn sure that I'm dealing with iron deficiency anemia. If it's normal or elevated and there's an acute inflammatory state, it isn't that helpful. Meaning that you can have a normal or even elevated ferritin in somebody that has iron deficiency anemia if they have an inflammatory condition or liver disease or leukemia. And the other thing too with ferritin is you have to be a little bit careful because if you start replacing iron, so if you're on oral iron pills, the ferritin will rise in about two weeks. Doesn't mean that you've replaced all the iron in the body. And after an IV dose of iron, the ferritin will usually rise within about 24 hours. And so that's actually an important point. Before you just start throwing iron at anemia, you should have the labs drawn or add on the iron studies to labs that you have already drawn. I actually very rarely need to redraw a patient to study anemias. You can just add on the studies to the blood that you already have and save your poor patients a needle stick. And after all, one of the causes of anemias is recurrent phlebotomy. When you're dealing with iron deficiency anemia, you either are losing iron, usually through bleeding, 
or you're having decreased iron intake, meaning you're not getting enough iron in the diet or there's decreased absorption. One of the most common reasons that we see loss of iron through bleeding is through menstruation and probably another common one is loss of iron through bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract. Now sometimes that's real obvious if there was hematemesis or melana, but also there can be occult slow blood loss, such as from a colon cancer. And probably some of the more profound low hemoglobins and severe iron deficiency anemias I've seen in my patients has been when there has been an unrecognized colon cancer that's been slowly losing blood and iron. A less common cause of iron deficiency anemia, but one I think you will see once in a while, are people that give blood frequently at the Red Cross or wherever, and they, through repeated phlebotomy, lose their iron stores if they are giving blood too frequently. But nowadays, you see that less because they actually test you for anemia. And if your hemoglobin is dropping a bit too low, they usually will identify that at the blood bank or whatever setting you're giving blood at. And one thing to always keep in mind if you think there is a loss of iron but you can't really figure out where it's happening, you may want to send a UA off because there could be genital urinary bleeding such as microscopic hematuria. And before we talk about decreased intake of iron, it also should be noted that on average, an adult will lose just a little bit of iron every day normally. About two milligrams of iron is normal to lose every single day. Those natural losses happen in your stools, in your urine, and in your sweat. So when you eat something with iron, it's absorbed in the gut and mostly actually absorbed in the duodenum, but some other areas as well. And then it gets bound eventually to transferrin, which transports it to erythrocytes, where it then gets incorporated into hemoglobin. If there's excess iron, it is stored in the liver, in the hepatocytes, and then in the Kupfer cells. And I'm sure you remember that the Kupfer cells are macrophages of the liver that were named after Karl von Kupfer, a German anatomist that lived from 1829 to 1902. However, of probably more interest is that if you have increased iron stores, the hepatic cells down-regulate the absorption of iron by secreting a hormone called hepcidin. Now, there are some people that make proteins that block the action of hepcidin, and that can result in an iron overload disease such as hemochromatosis. Another and probably much more common scenario is that chronic illnesses and infections can increase hepcidin levels. And what does that cause? Well, that can cause anemia of chronic disease, among other pathways that cause anemia of chronic disease. All right, so in talking about normal iron intake, you've got to be on a pretty specialized, or at least a non-Western diet, 
or I should probably say, if there is such a thing, you're not on a typical Western diet if the cause of your iron deficiency is inadequate iron intake. So remember, I was saying that most of the time we only lose a tiny amount of iron each day in our sweat, in our urine, in our stool. And so the typical average Western meal, I'm not talking about the day of intake, but just the meal, is about six milligrams of iron. So if you're losing two milligrams a day, Typically, if you're living in the United States or other Western countries, the dietary insufficiency isn't that common of a cause of iron deficiency. Now, I know this podcast goes globally and is listened to in a lot of parts of the world, so that may not be the case where you live. You may actually have an area where you're living in where there is inadequate iron intake in the diet. Though there can be things that influence how much iron you absorb or don't absorb. So if you eat a lot of calcium and milk products, calcium does impair iron absorption. And there can be other dietary factors, some that are good for you, that impair iron absorption. So soy protein, um, certain kinds of fibers like bran and oats. And then classically, if you read about this subject, there are certain teas and even vegetables, and these contain polyphenols that are an abundant micronutrient in our diets. And certain kinds of these polyphenols can decrease the amount of iron that the body does absorb. Again, typically with the Western diet, not a big deal because we get tons of iron from all kinds of sources, and the polyphenols in general are probably good for you because the foods they come in are typically very good for you. Anything that decreases stomach acid, like proton pump inhibitors, can decrease the amount of iron that you absorb. And then there's celiac disease. And celiac disease is interesting because not only can it cause iron deficiency anemia, one of the problems with it is you can be refractory to oral iron treatment. In fact, that's very, very common, if not the rule for celiac disease. So prescribing iron pills and then not seeing the iron deficiency anemia get any better, you've got to have a light go off in your brain saying, well, maybe this is celiac disease. And then like I said, much of iron absorption happens in the duodenum. So if you've had any kind of gastric or duodenal surgery, that can also cause iron absorption problems and therefore decreased nutritional intake. There are situations where you really have a significantly increased iron requirement. So obviously pregnancy is one of those, but so is lactation. I should probably also say that sometimes an underlying Helicobacter pylori infection can make you refractory to oral iron supplementation or cause iron deficiency anemia. And likewise, patients with subclinical hypothyroidism, when they start getting replaced with levothyroxine, they are more responsive to the absorption of iron supplements. And any 
listener of my podcast in the past knows I don't deal with kids or pediatrics, but when it does come to infants, it is worth noting that a milk product unsupplemented with iron can cause iron deficiency anemia in infants. So that's the basics of this hypochromic microcytic anemia. We still need to discuss how to replace iron once iron deficiency is found, so I will do that on the next round. Adios, amigos.